0: a joy to stand with you, to be here this morning, and uh, if uh, some more people come in, I might have to ask my family to sit back up here on this pew behind me. Wouldn't that be fun for them? My kids would love that. Hallelujah. I would invite you this morning to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be looking this morning at this account of what took place in the life of Abraham, according to Moses, after the Lord blessed Abraham. And I said last week when we were in Genesis that Moses intends for this book to be a world-shaping document for us, an identity-forming document for us. So I also mentioned that the Bible is a take-no-prisoners kind of book, And, and what I mean here is that the Bible wants to take your imagination and your identity captive. The Bible wants you, it's trying to force you to decide who you're going to be, and in terms of your identity, the question in the Bible comes down to this. Are you going to be with the seed of the serpent, or are you going to be with the seed of the woman? That's the question that the Bible is giving you, and uh, the scriptures, the biblical authors, they want you to recognize that the seed of the serpent are going to be crushed by the singular seed of the woman, by the Lord Jesus. And the biblical authors want you to identify with the singular seed of the woman, Jesus, so that you are part of the seed of the woman. And we saw last week how that statement in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And then verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. That's really definitive. Are you with Abraham, or are you against Abraham? And so as we pick this up in verse 4, it's, I think it's fascinating the way that Moses, in his artistry, is telling us this story. Because what he's going to do is he's going to pick up things that have gone before and he's going to preview things that have come after. And, and let's just remember that the man Moses, whom uh, the scriptures present as the author of this narrative, he's also the man who led Israel out of Egypt. And that means that this man Moses, he experienced the events of the exodus from Egypt and that's going to inform for us what we're going to see in this narrative before us. So let's pick this up in verse 4. So Abram went. Okay, so verse 1, Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, go. Verse 4, Abram went. And again, we can see the power of the word of God, can't we? God says, go, and he goes. God says, let there be light, and the lights come on. in the universe, Without sun, moon, and stars, the light springs into existence. And God says to Abram, go. And the scriptures say, believe. And people with dead hearts start believing. And, and once God gives life in this way, people whose minds are otherwise set on earthly things all of a sudden begin to have their, their hopes set on things above. This is the way the word of God works for us. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. I would just draw your attention back to chapter 11 verse 31 where they went forth in the middle of the verse together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. So now Abram is setting out in 12:4 from Haran and he's 75 years old. And then I would also draw your attention back to chapter 11 verse 30, Sarah was barren, she had no child, and God has said I'm gonna make you a great nation. So why is Moses including these details? Moses is including these details because he wants us to see the obstacles to the fulfillment of God's promises. These are obstacles to the fulfillment of God's promise. God says to this man, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Little problem, his wife can't have children. Another little problem, he's 75 years old. So Moses is showing us the obstacles to the realization of the promises that God has made to Abram. So he departs from Haran, and let's just do our map again. And, you know, last time I did the map out here in the congregation, and I was thinking about this, and usually when we look at maps, they're kind of in front of us. So I want to do the map up on the wall here in front of you. So you see that box there on the wall with, with glass on it? I think they used to put, like, attendance information and things like that here at the church. That's our. That's, we're going to say that's the Sea of Galilee, Okay. And then, and then just imagine a Jordan River flowing up to that hole in that big rectangular uh, wooden box. And that hole, we're just going to say that's the Sea of Galilee. Did I say Dead Sea? I meant to say Dead Sea for this first little one. So Dead Sea, the little box with the window on it, map is not drawn to scale. Sea of Galilee is larger than Dead Sea. Don't worry about it. Dead Sea down here, Sea of Galilee flowing up. I'm sorry, Jordan River flowing up to the Sea of Galilee. And then Jerusalem is down here by the Dead Sea. And then we're going to say that Heron is like up there, kind of kind of where that, um, that big box in the middle of the thing is. That's, that's up north, way up north there is where Heron is, maybe, the, maybe like the top corner of that. And then down here on the screen, we'll just say that this corner is where the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers break out uh, to both of them kind of flow north up there, okay? So... Ur of the Chaldees was over here. They go way up north to Haran. And now they're going to start south from Haran into the land of promise. And um, in verse 5 of Genesis 12, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And I just want to pause and make a comment about this. Some people look at this and they assume that, that Abram had slaves. And in part, I just want to say, the text doesn't tell us that. The text doesn't tell us what the relationship is between Abram and these people that he has quote-unquote acquired. We read about one of these guys over in chapter 15, where in 15 verse 2, Abram says to the Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And we talked last time about Damascus, so if if that little box right there, that little hole in the wooden box, is uh, the Sea of Galilee, Damascus would be at like the top of that wooden rectangular thing up there, south of Haran, but well north of the Sea of Galilee. So apparently, on their way south from Haran, they picked, it, picked this guy Eliezer up. And I don't know what the relationship is. I don't know what the, what the terms are between Abram. We're not told, Moses is not interested in those details. But apparently, this guy could be the heir of everything that Abram owns if he doesn't have a child. So we're just not told whether these people work for Abram and he's paying them, or whether somehow there's a... We're just not told what the relationship is, okay? And I just want to leave it at that. The text is silent, so I'd like to be. Um, Continuing there in verse 5, all their possessions that they had gathered. Now, you remember what we saw in 12.2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. You know, we're we're seeing obstacles to the realization of the promise. We're also seeing initial fulfillments of the realization of the promise because this man, Abram, the text is telling us he's a man of great wealth already. Even before he goes down into Egypt, he's already acquiring great wealth. And he's got lots of people who who are gathering around him. And we're going to see in chapter 14 that he has like an army in his own house. In his his household, he has 318 trained men. So it's almost like Abram is a a migrant warlord or chieftain or something. He's, He's almost a king moving around in the ancient Near East. So they set out, in the middle of verse 5 there, to go to the land of Canaan. Okay, so if we've got Dead Sea in that little box, and then Sea of Galilee, and Jordan River connecting them, the land of Canaan is kind of like the area between uh, those two things and that balcony. So if, there were a, if, if on the other side of the balcony were the Mediterranean Sea, that little strip of land there would be the land of Canaan, that's where they're going. And then in verse, at the end of verse 5, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've read this passage a lot of times in my life, and it's been one of the less engaging passages. Uh, but, so I don't ever want to call the Bible um, less interesting, or I don't ever want to use that word that starts with B that a lot of kids use, you know boring, but you know, these are travel details. They're, they're sites. And if you're not looking at a map, you can think to yourself, why is this relevant? Why is Moses telling me this? And I can remember hearing a pastor named Tony Evans, who pastors in Dallas, Texas one time, he, he said, um, he said, a lot of times we see these place names in the Bible and we just pass right over them. And then he goes, most times they're crucial. And, and these place names are really interesting. When you look at them, okay, so Shechem, Shechem would be up there by that, that hole in the rectangular box, by the Sea of Galilee. And then we, we read on um, the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then down in verse 8, we read about he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and Ai. Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And Bethel and Ai are down here by the Sea of Galilee, uh, closer to Jerusalem. So he's he's come south from Haran to Shechem to Bethel. Well, why would this be significant? Later in the book, so Abram is going to have Isaac, and then Isaac is going to have Jacob and Esau. And you remember what Esau did. Esau troubled his parents by marrying uh, Hittite women, Canaanite women, who caused problems for his parents. And, um, and, and so what they did was they sent Jacob back to these relatives that we read about right here in eleven thirty one to 32, because not everybody in the family came south with Abram. There were some members of the family, um, Nahor's children, who stayed up there in Haran, so they send Jacob back up to Haran, and then when Jacob, after he marries um, Rachel and Leah, he comes back. And and later in Genesis, we read about how he came first to Shechem, and guess what he did there? He did the same thing that Abraham built there. He he built an altar. And then he comes south to Bethel, and guess what he did in Bethel? He did the same thing that Abram's going to do in Bethel. He builds an altar. Why would this be significant? Well, think about this. Abram, Haran, Shechem, altar, Bethel, altar, Jacob, Haran, Shechem, altar, Bethel, altar you know later in israel's history um they are going to be exiled to babylon and then it's going to be like a redo of this they're going to come back to the land and and as the prophets describe particularly hosea you go read hosea chapter 12 and hosea he it's like he conflates israel coming out of egypt at the exodus with jacob coming back to the land having married Rachel and Leah. It's like Hosea is suggesting that there's some kind of analogy between the way that... Now, what would be the connecting point? Well, I think the connecting point is that for Hosea, um, when Israel was enslaved down in Egypt, God did the exodus to bring them out. And now they've been exiled to Babylon, and God's going to do a new exodus, and he's going to bring them back, and they're going to repeat the history that Jacob repeated from the history of Abraham. So, so the, there's all, there are, there are all, I think there are always interesting things to see in the Bible. Um, we could talk about that more later if you'd like. Let me, let me draw your attention back to something that we see here in verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. You know what we see there? We see another obstacle to the realization of the promise Little pro- God, God is. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring." Hey, wait a minute, Lord. I'm 75 years old, and my wife is barren. To your offspring, this is why Paul talks about the word of God calling into being things that do not exist. Romans four. To your offspring, I will give this land hey, wait a minute, Lord, little problem, there are inhabitants of this land. Canaanites are in the land. That's no problem for the Lord. Now, one, one thing that's so fascinating about this passage is the way that it's like our lives. We, we talked last time about how the promise of this little strip of land is like the storming of the beaches of Normandy. The, the, it's, like, it's like when Adam and Eve sinned they, they surrendered dominion over the world to the prince of the power of the air. And it's like when God promises to Abram, to your seed, I will give this land. He's saying, we're going to storm those beaches. We're going to take it back. And that's our entry point for reclaiming the whole world. And Abram is sitting there and he's like, I got no kids. I'm 75 years old. My wife is barren. And these inhabitants of the land, they don't look like they're going to want to leave. And that's the way it feels in our lives sometimes, isn't it? Let me point out too here that this is the land that God is promising to Abram, and he's a total stranger in it. He's a total foreigner. He is a minority of minorities. He is not native. And God says, this is yours. And this is the starting point of the new heaven And the new earth, that's where the Lord is going. That's what it's driving toward. And and it's like the Bible is saying to us, are you willing to trust? Are you willing to believe? I know, I know. Let's Let's be realists. Let's acknowledge the facts. Abraham's got no children. There are Canaanites entrenched in the land. We see how difficult it is. Are these things too difficult for the Lord? No way. No way. And we're in the same place, aren't we? This, we? We are aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our home, okay? And yes, we can, we can work for justice, but ultimately we know, don't we, that justice is going to come when the king comes. The king's going to bring justice. And he's going to bring a lot of justice that's going to be more than anybody that's opposed to him ever desired. And, and, and so we know what justice is, and we can pursue that together, but we also have our hopes fixed on the fulfillment of the promises. Uh, look at. Look at the, the response of Abram. There in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said. To your offspring I will give this land. Don't miss the logical connection. Between that phrase. And the next. So he built an altar. There. To Yahweh who had appeared to him. Promise. Promise. And then worship. What's between the promise and the worship? Faith, isn't it? Faith. Belief. The text doesn't spell it out, but that's what's informing it. Abram responds in worship because he believes the promise. And we talked last week about how the promise in 12 1 through 3 is the big solution to the world's big problem. Well, this is what Abram's doing Abram is saying, I believe your goodness. I believe that you're going to make all things new. I believe that you're going to do it. So I'm going to build an altar. It makes no sense. All of my experience, all of reality testifies against me, but your word said it's going to be so, so I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to offer up sacrifices in worship to you. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar. Every time you read this, you should think, Abraham is believing the promise. Abraham is responding to the promises of God, to God's revelation of himself with worship. That's what he's doing. And then we read on there, He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And this should remind you of Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where after the birth of Seth, we read, at that time, men begin to call on the name of the Lord. And what Moses is telling us is, in the same way that they were worshiping Yahweh in Seth's day, so Abram is worshiping the Lord. There's, there's, There's an interconnectedness of the faith of these people. And that brings us to verse... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 9. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So the Negev is down, kind of down south of the Sea of Galilee. And um, and then we come to this passage that I think, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, 1, is one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible because of the way that it gives us, and this, here's the sermon title today, a preview of the Exodus from Egypt. Okay, so um, um, this is a... This is a marvelous passage. And again, I want to suggest to you that Moses, the guy that led Israel out of Egypt at the exodus, Moses somehow got these accounts of what took place in the life of Abraham. And I, I think that what happened here is Moses has lived through the exodus and then he's thinking about the life of Abraham. And what happens to him is he realizes, oh my goodness, what happened to Abraham is the same thing that happened to us. And then he starts to reflect on this. And, he, and he, I think his, his thoughts go something like this. Why would the sovereign God orchestrate history so that what happened to Abraham is like so similar to what happened to us at the Exodus? And, and I think that what Moses concluded is this is the kind of thing or the type of thing that God does when he saves his people. And then what Moses does uh, I don't have to, I don't I don't want to take the time to go to well I'm tempted but I don't I'm going to resist it. I think that if we went and looked at Exodus chapter 15, I could show you, I'll just refer to it and you go look at it later. What Moses does there in Exodus 15 as he celebrates Israel coming through the Red Sea, he alludes to the way that the 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 hosts of Pharaoh, Pharaoh and his hosts, they sank like a stone into the Red Sea when Israel crossed through the Red Sea. And then he says, that the inhabitants of Canaan, when the Israelites go into Canaan, they're going to be still as a stone while Israel passes over. Okay, so, so the Passover, the enemies are still like a stone and they sink. Well, at the conquest, Israel's going to pass over and the enemies are going to be like a stone, still as a stone. And I think what Moses is saying is the way that God saved us at the Exodus is the way that God is going to save you when you conquer the land. And then later biblical authors, they start picking this up and they start saying the way that God saved us at the Exodus is the way that God is going to save us in the future. So here's what happens. Um, The Exodus from Egypt becomes for them an interpretive schema. In other words, it's it's like a, a pattern of events that they use to interpret their own lives. You may remember when we were in Psalm 18, I I tried to argue that David was describing the way that God delivered him from Saul and from all his enemies as though it was an exodus from Egypt in his own life. So it's an interpretive schema, and it's also a predictive paradigm. In other words, what God did for us at the exodus is what he's going to do for us when he finally sends the Messiah. And so I think this is why... Uh, You find so much reference to the exodus from Egypt in the Gospels. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, At the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke's Gospel, uh, Elijah and Moses are discussing the exodus that Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem. And on and on we could go, pointing to references to the exodus from Egypt in uh, the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. And I think Moses meant for the exodus to be understood this way. And, he, and he, he comes to understand it and he says, I've got to show them the preview of the exodus in Abraham's life. And then I've got to show them the pattern at the exodus from Egypt. And then I've got to indicate that the conquest is going to be like an exodus. And what he's doing is he's saying, you see this pattern of events? This is the way that God works. So what does the pattern of events entail? It entails people that are disadvantaged, not really significant in the eyes of the world, um, coming uh, in, into great danger and then against all expectation being delivered by God's power, not by their own strength, not by their own power, by God's power. So let's look together at this here in Exodus chapter 12, the preview of the Exodus from Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, look at verse 10. There was a famine in the land. You will remember that later in the book, Joseph is going to be... Uh, in prison and Pharaoh's going to start having dreams and Pharaoh dreams of those seven fat cows and those seven lean cows. And Joseph understands those seven lean cows that eat up the fat cows. Those, that's a famine that's coming on the land. And there's going to be a famine. And you remember what's going to happen in response to the famine. Uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, is going to say to Joseph's brothers, why are you guys just sitting here looking at each other? I need you to go down to Egypt and buy some grain. There's food in Egypt. There's grain in Egypt. Go buy some grain in Egypt. And also I would observe that the fact that Joseph has wisely administered the abundance of those seven years, it's it's like Genesis 12, 2, and 3. All the world is being blessed through the seed of Abraham, Joseph, who's Lord over all Egypt. And if we just add to our map here, okay, Egypt is going to be down like by that exit sign over there. And you can just, above that's the Mediterranean Sea, and you can imagine uh, the Nile River kind of flowing out of that exit sign, and, and Egypt is over there on the other side of the Nile. So there's a famine in the land in the middle of verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Drop your eyes down to 13.1. So Abram went up from Egypt. 12.10, Abram went down to Egypt. 13.1, Abram went up from Egypt. Um, when you see things like this, uh, like a statement at the beginning that parallels the statement at the end, I think you should start looking for matching elements in between, things that are going to correspond to one another. I think that's what we find. 12.10, uh, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, in verses 11 through 13, Abram is going is to hatch this plan That he and Sarah are going to engage in when they get down to Egypt. It's a stupid plan. It's a plan that jeopardizes the promise. We've seen obstacles to the promise. Abram's old, Sarah's barren, there's Canaanites in the land. Well, now the obstacle to the promise, to the realization of the promise, is Abram's sinful folly. This is stupid. This is foolish what he does. And the the good news of the Bible is that as sinful and as foolish as we are, it won't stop God from fulfilling his promise. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, Abram has probably accurately assessed the situation. That's probably true. That's probably what's going to happen to him. And, you know, praise God that we don't live. I mean, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful that I don't live in the ancient Near East, where I don't have to worry about things like this. Praise God that, uh, you know, uh, it's not quite, I mean, things are brutal, bad things happen, but it's not quite this bad. As bad as it is, even if Abram has accurately assessed the situation, he ought to come up with a different plan. This is a bad plan. Because look at, look at what he says here. Verse 13. Say you are my sister. And Moses is just merciless to Abram in his presentation of what he says. He makes Abram look just as bad as he was. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me... Because of you. That's, that's just as bad as it sounds. Abram is essentially using Sarah as a human shield. It's the opposite of what a husband is supposed to do. A husband is supposed to protect and provide. And Abram is saying to Sarah, you protect me. You provide for me. At your expense, it's going to go well for me. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, okay, so there's Abram's uh, instructions to Sarah in verses 11 through 13, and now we see what happens in verses 14 through 17. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So it's exactly what Abram said. They seize her, and this... This expression, she was taken into Pharaoh's house. Essentially, what's happened is she's been added to Pharaoh's harem. And then, you know, in, in our, even in our world today, um, very often when a woman is um, going to be used or abused by men, there will be a man in her life who benefits from that financially. We refer to those guys as pimps. This is... This is brutal. This is awful. Look at verse 16. For her sake, Sarah's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. They just pay Abram off. He benefits financially, and Sarah has been subjected, I mean, the language we would use for this today, to sex slavery. Abram's foolish. Abram's sinful folly, his cowardice, got him into this. And this is why we read that passage from John 18. Because there, there's going to be a, this pattern that we're seeing here in Genesis 12. Abraham's going to do it again in Genesis 20. Same thing. And then Isaac, his son, is going to do, it, do the same thing in Genesis 26. And it's just going to keep happening across the Old Testament where the men who are supposed to protect the women in their lives, they don't do it. And they, they, put, they jeopardize the lives of these women for their own benefit. And then that man, Jesus, comes along. And they come for him. And he, he steps forward. And he says to that army that has come out to get him, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to them, I am. And then he says, if it's me that you seek, you take, you take me and you let these go free. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that after our history of sin and foolishness, Jesus stepped forward and did for us what we always failed to do. Jesus stepped forward and gave himself for us and died in our place that we could be saved. So if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, I know that... I understand why you, you could get the impression that Christians think that they have all the answers and that Christians are so self-righteous and, and that's not the impression we want to convey and we're sorry if we've given you that impression. That, that is not who we are. That's not really what we think. What we think is that we're like Abraham who's sinful and foolish and, and we've been saved by Jesus who was righteous, who protected us, who shielded us with his very life. That's that's what we are as Christians, and we hope you'll join us. We hope that, like us, you'll embrace Jesus as your Savior. In spite of Abram's sinful folly, which, you know, it's one thing for Sarah to be barren. It's another thing for Abram to have her taken away. She's seized by Pharaoh and taken into his house. But then look at verse 17. The Lord... "...afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife." That word plagues is the same word used in the book of Exodus to describe the plagues that come on Egypt. So, look at the parallel. There's a famine. there's There's a descent of God's chosen people into Egypt... And then God, at least here, a representative of God's chosen people, Sarah, winds up in slavery, just like the Egyptian, uh, the, the Israelites will wind up in slavery. And then to liberate his people, God visits plagues upon them, upon, the, upon their oppressors, and frees them. And then in the same way that Abram spoke to Sarah in verses 11 through 13, Pharaoh is now going to speak to Abram and his men in verses 18 through 20. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Um, you know, there, there's a, in, in, in literary studies, there's this thing called narrative irony. And it's ironic that the representative of the seed of the serpent, and, and in the book of Genesis and in uh, Exodus, uh, the Egyptians, they're like the seed of the serpent. Uh, They've just oppressed Sarah and, and seized her and taken her. The Pharaoh, he on his turban, on his crown, he's got a cobra. And at the exodus from Egypt, God is going to crush the, the head of the serpent, destroy Egypt and its gods. And the seed of the serpent is here rebuking the seed of the woman for his unrighteousness. That's not, there's narrative irony here, that, that it would be Pharaoh who rebukes Abram. What is this? That you have done to me. Uh, Can you think of another time where the question, What is this that you have done, has come up in the book of Genesis? We've seen this question before, haven't we? God said to Cain, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God said to Adam and Eve, What have you done? So, So Abram's sin is like their sin. These these points of contact are are recurring across the narrative. What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Because I didn't want you to kill me? No, I mean, that's that's why. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. I, I think... You know, it's, it's more abrupt if you read it in the original. It's like he's saying to her, Take! Get out! Pharaoh says. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And then what's going to happen after they come up out of Egypt is they're going to go up into the land of promise, and there are going to be other things that happen that are very similar to what happened when Israel came out of the land of Egypt. Egypt. So what do we take away from this? How do we apply this? Let me give you just a couple of points of application. I'll give you several points of application. Number one, note again the power of the word of God. The power of the... God says, go, Abram goes. And God says, I'm going to bless you, and Abraham starts to grow in wealth. And then let me urge you to learn from the obstacles... To the realization of the promise in the narrative about Abraham. Because we know how this turns out, don't we? We know that Abram is going to give birth to Isaac through Sarah. We know what's going to happen. So, if in your life, you run into things and you think, for what God promises to be realized here, that's impossible. There's no way for that to come to pass. Just think about this narrative. And... and this is so common in the Old Testament. All across, this keeps happening in the Old Testament. I mean, the people of Israel, they get to the Red Sea, and here comes the army of Pharaoh. It's impossible for them to be delivered. Not for the Lord. Sea wo- opens up. Israel crosses through on dry ground. Then they're out in the wilderness. They've got nothing to eat. And they're all saying, Why did you bring us out into this wilderness to kill us? The Bible is trying to teach us not to respond that way. The Bible is trying to teach us that when we get out into a situation where it seems like there's no food, there's no way through, there's no way for God's promises to be realized, we should start thinking to ourselves, this is going to be good. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but this is going to be good. I don't know how he's going to pull this off, but I'm con- some- he's going to do something. That's how we should think. I don't know what this is going to look like, but this is going to be good. That's, what the, that's the way the scriptures... This is why Paul says whatever was written, Romans 15, 4, in former days, was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Power of the word of God. Learn from the obstacles to the realization of the promise. And then, thirdly, pay attention to the details... And and think of of early details in in light of later details. And here I'm thinking of the way that Abram's uh, descent from Haran through Shechem to Bethel matches Jacob's descent from Haran through Shechem to Bethel. And then the way that you get this preview of the exodus from Egypt and the way that this anticipates what God is going to do for the Israelites when they come out of Egypt and for us when Christ dies on the cross. I think I think that uh, Moses means for us to see these patterns, and the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to give us these patterns. And we want to be people who meditate on the Scriptures day and night, so that when things happen in our culture, like what's going on right now, we we're 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 people who are ready to say, "Yeah, I know it looks bad. I know it looks bad, but there's hope. There's hope." As long as there's life, there's hope. As long as there's the Bible, there's hope. As long as there's Jesus, there's hope. So we can can work toward justice now, just like Abram. He worked toward the realization of possessing the land and having Isaac. But in Abram's life, it was so small, wasn't it? I mean, you you think about the, the new heavens and new earth, and you got this one little old man with a barren wife. And then they have one child, And we're called to what Paul speaks of in Colossians 3. I was reflecting on this passage as I was thinking about what's going on in these various places that have been alluded to in response to these tragic killings. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died Away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then listen to verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The Bible wants us to take our primary identity as identification with Christ, the seed of the woman. And I know know that's hard, but this is what we're called to. And if you say to me, that's impossible, I'm going to say, yeah, so was the Red Sea. So was Isaac. So was Sarah getting out of the harem. God does impossible things. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, That's the last thing I want to say. There are many ways to look at the world today, many ways to think about life that don't result in you being thankful. But if you will allow the Bible to take your heart and your mind and your identity captive, gratitude will be a natural response. It'll be easy to be thankful because you won't, you'll be thinking mainly, I deserve to go to hell and Jesus died for me. I was a wretched, awful, wicked person, and Jesus has transformed me. Thank God. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes Christian virtue and Christian identity does indeed seem impossible, but You are the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and You are the God who has Shown in our hearts with the light of the glory of Christ Himself. So, Father, I pray that You would cause us to be people who are so overwhelmed with the glory of Christ, so enraptured by what the Scriptures say of Him and what the Bible indicates will take place when he comes and how all things will be made right and everything made new. Lord, I pray that you would cause the Scriptures to transform our hearts and make us people who don't respond the way the Israelites did when they accused you of being intent on killing them in the wilderness. Lord, cause us to learn from these narratives what it looks like to be people of faith and hope and love. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.